Well, what would you do? We're talking about situations where people we care about are in crisis. It could be a friend comes in crisis and talks about a hard situation they're facing. It might be that uh, our, our kids or grandkids are spending time with kind of risky people or making risky decisions. It could be that the person that you've been pouring your life into and praying for for years is now ready for honest conversations about who Jesus is and what he means for their lives. In any of those situations, we do anything, right? We do anything we can to make a difference and to bring those people along. So in our series, Hebrews, Jesus is Greater, uh, the life-giving message of Hebrews, uh, we're about midway through chapter 7 today, and uh, I think it's important for us to take a moment and just remind ourselves that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews had a relationship with these people. At one time, they lived in the same community, and this person had ministered to them, cared for them, carried their burdens, and pointed them to Jesus. And they celebrated what God was doing in their midst. But now distance separates them, and reports are coming to the writer that these people that they invested in so much are now being challenged, tempted to turn away from Jesus and go back to the old familiar ways of legalism and Judaism. Or some are even being encouraged to just kind of let that life of faith go behind them and turn just towards secularism and to lean into the power of Rome uh, or the promise and pleasure of Rome. And so the writer is in that situation where they're coming face to face with somebody that they care so deeply about and they're in crisis. And so this whole letter is them pouring out their heart to help them see how awesome Jesus is and how present he is for them, that there's no other option for them. As we read through chapter 7, uh, my previous texts for this series have been like three to six verses, and we've got 28 today. So we can be here for a long, long time. Um, no, but uh, um, as we read through chapter 7, as I've been reading it, like there are times that I feel like I'm reading this theological research paper. Like, uh, you know, Melchizedek is this, we're going to, hear a lot about Melchizedek today. He's this mysterious guy who shows up for about three verses in Genesis 14. Then a thousand years later, God inspires David to write a psalm that mentions his name. And a thousand years after that, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to figure out what to say to their friends. And suddenly this verse comes to them. And I think it's helpful as we read through all this, this incredibly well-formatted argument that really sounds like a research paper. But I think the heart behind it is easier to capture when you think about yourself being in one of those situations where you, one of your friends came to you or you're worried about your kids or whatever, and, and you're just praying about it. And you're saying, Lord, what can I share? What can I offer? What can I do? And then you're spending time reading scripture 
and something just leaps off the page and you know in that moment that this is exactly what they need to hear. And I think in a similar situation, the writer to the Hebrews was praying about this situation that their friends were facing, going to worship, and one day they read from Psalm 110. And the writer of the Hebrews heard this declaration, but you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And suddenly this light bulb went off. And, and the writer to the Hebrews knew Melchizedek was this key to helping their friends know who Jesus was. And so that is kind of what chapter 7 is about for us today. As we work our way through it, we're going to ask ourselves a couple questions. And the first is, why does it matter that Jesus is like Melchizedek? Why would this person spend so much time talking about this person who history had almost forgotten? Well, first, we find that Melchizedek is a better priest. So as the writer's friends are being tempted to go back to their old familiar ways of Judaism and to rely on this priesthood, the writer to the Hebrews says, but Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a better priest than the ones that we're used to. And so throughout the chapter, uh, there are a number of explanations and evidence that the writer gives for that. And first, we see that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and his descendants. So uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, describes the situation from Genesis 14 where Melchizedek comes to Abraham. Abraham had just won this battle against some neighboring kings. And Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth, a tithe of all the plunder that they got from the battles. And so the writer to the Hebrews then kind of describes that and says, well, our priesthood came from the descendants of Abraham, you know, the descendants of Levi, and Levi wasn't even born yet when this happened. And so Abraham is greater than Levi, but there's this sense in which the writer says, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about. I love thinking like this. So uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, so there's this sense in which like our system in the old covenant, like we gave a tenth to the priests uh, as our way to give to God, and then the priest took care of it, and it helped take care of them. But if you think about it, since Levi wasn't even born yet, he was just kind of embedded in the DNA of Abraham. So when Abraham gave this tenth, like basically all the priests were giving this tithe offering to this other priest. And so Melchizedek is greater than all of our priests. Okay? I don't know if you tracked with that, but that's what the writer says. And if you didn't, just listen to some of the other ones. Uh, so, plus, the writer says, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we know that the blessing always goes from the greater to the lesser, greater to the weaker. And so Melchizedek was called out by God to come in this moment and bless Abraham, which means he was greater than Abraham and greater than Abraham's descendants. So Melchizedek is greater than all the priests we've ever known. Melchizedek is also a better priest because our priests, 
died. So Melchizedek died too, but it's not recorded for us. And so kind of in this kind of vacuum of information, the writer of the Hebrews uses that as a symbol and says, Melchizedek just walked on the stage and then vanished. We don't know anything about his parents, anything about his heritage. You know, genealogies are super important to the Jewish people and in ancient peoples in general because they served as kind of this resume. It, it gave them clout. It like showed their bloodline, where they came from, and it was the legitimacy of what they were doing. So it said, see, I've been born from the right people. I've had the right experiences, and that's why I get to do this. And so the genealogy was this evidence that the person was in the right place. Well, Melchizedek doesn't have that. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his parents. We don't know any of it. We just know he was king of the city of Salem. And his name means king of righteousness, king of peace. So the writer of the Hebrews says, we have this long line of priests who lived and died, and none of them could, you know, they were all human beings. They all had weaknesses. They all had limitations. But Melchizedek, he had no successor. And Jesus is like that. In his indestructible life, as he lives forever, he's a priest that never gets tired, never wears out, and is always available. We don't have to wait for the next one, and he's always good. Then, the writer of the Hebrews also says that Melchizedek had authority from God. We learned about that last week, uh, that God declared by oath that Melchizedek was a priest. And he says, in this, the writer says, in a similar way, Jesus was declared to be priest by the oath and word and declaration of God. And so not inherited by the bloodline where, you know, you just have to trust that this priest is going to be good at it because they came from other priests. But no, separate from that, not just because of a bloodline, not because it was inherited by the law or according to the law, but because God declared for us, to us, that Jesus belonged there. He's the one that we can trust and rely on. And then the writers of the Hebrews kind of brings out this thing kind of loosely, uh, but I think it's important. Melchizedek is both priest and king. The writers to the Hebrews kind of helps us remember that in God's first covenant, in the old covenant, he had established separate bloodlines for kings and priests, kind of in order to protect each of them and the integrity of their positions, so that the kings who are vying for power wouldn't also have spiritual authority over the people. But Melchizedek is both priest and king. He was appointed by God as a priest and gave a blessing to Abraham, but he was also king of Salem. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus is like that. For the first time and the only other time, God has established that the king, because he says, we all know that our Savior Jesus came from the line of Judah. He came from the line of kings. There were kings and kings and kings and kings ahead of him. And so he had that bloodline. And our law said he would never be able to be a priest, but God declared for us that he would be a priest as well. So Jesus uniquely has the opportunity to do both. 
for us. So then we have to ask the question, how does this help us trust Jesus or assure us in crisis? We know the people that this letter was written to were facing crisis. Their lives were on the line. People wanted to kill them because they were following Jesus. Their reputations were in danger. Their, their family relationships were in tension as they had chosen to follow Jesus and say no to the old ways of Judaism. They were living in crisis and they were trying to figure out what was best for them. And they were wrestling with giving up on Jesus to go back to things that made more earthly sense. So how does this information in Hebrews chapter 7 help us? Well, I think uh, the end of chapter 7 just offers these beautiful declarations about who Jesus is and what he does. And so we're going to start at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. And I'm going to turn this way so you can see my bald spot and I can read. Uh, so... Now, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in, in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So how do these truths, the fact that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, how does it help us trust Jesus and be assured through crisis? Well, the first big point that we see, especially highlighted in these last verses, is that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, and it was all for us. The writer of the Hebrews says, We've had this long succession of priests. We lived in the system where there were always sacrifices being given in worship. And those sacrifices were important and they were true and that God embedded that in their law and their way of life for good reason. So that they would always know that their sin and rebellion, their self-reliance, comes with great cost. It's costly, it's weighty, it separates them from God. And through all these sacrifices, they would be continually reminded that God is always working on their behalf to make it right, to fix their problem, to pay for their sins, to forgive their sins and draw them close to him, that they would be his people and he would be their God. But it was an ineffective and inefficient system. None of those sacrifices could ultimately pay for their sin. But Jesus sacrificed not the perfect lamb like animal, but sacrificed himself as the perfect lamb. 
that he himself as priest would also be our sacrifice. And when he laid down his life for us, he paid for all of our sin once for all. The sacrifice would never have to be repeated again. Not only did he not need a succession of descendant priests who could continue to carry the job. But after he made his sacrifice, it would never have to be made again. As a human, he could pay for our sin. And as God, he could pay for all of it. And that's what he did. But the writer of the Hebrews also wants us to understand this other important detail The priests who had come before and were active at that time had to offer sacrifices for themselves first, cleanse themselves of their sins, so then they could be ready and worthy to offer sacrifices to pay for the sins of the people. The writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus offered his life once for all. When he sacrificed himself, it was done, finished. And not only that, but he's different than we are. In ways that we had talked about a couple weeks ago, he's with us in his humanity and yet different from us in his holiness. He had never sinned. He was purely innocent. He had always had a perfect and right relationship with God, and he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He is the perfect priest. He can mediate between us and God without having to make atonement for his own sins first. So his sacrifice was once for all, once and done, but it was also all for us. He didn't have to pay for himself first. Everything he offered, everything he laid on the line was to cover our sins. And he did it willingly. And next we see that nothing interrupts Jesus' authority or care because he lives in heaven, reigns with God Most High, and intercedes for us forever. In chapter 7, the writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus as having an indestructible life. And it's important that we recognize that the, the writer wasn't trying to say he was so alive and so strong that he never died. He's acknowledging throughout this letter that Jesus died for real on the cross. But he had an indestructible life. Life is so full in him. He is God over life and death. And death could not contain him. He broke through. The tomb is empty. And so he reigns as the kingly savior Messiah that's been promised since the beginning. But he also lives and intercedes as the perfect priest who's paid for our sin and intercedes with the Father. He's talking with the Father and the Holy Spirit all the time about our needs, our situations. He's fully aware. Unlike the priests who had come before and the, the descendants of Levi and Aaron 
who one at a time were allowed the special task of being the high priest and entering into the Holy of Holies at the temple. Jesus lives and reigns at the right hand of God the Father in heaven over all things. There's no distraction, no separation between him and the Father. And as he is in constant communication with God the Father about what we need, what's going on, and how to make things work so that his kingdom will grow and he will sustain us as we follow him, he's also in constant communication with the Holy Spirit who lives in us as his followers, equipping his very presence, his very spirit, the one who, Scripture tells us, was the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He's equally communicating with the Father and the Spirit so that God is working together to lead us through everything that we face. He's with us all the time. He's the perfect priest. Nothing interrupts his authority in the Jewish line, there was priest after priest after priest after priest. They inherited, they lived, they died, and somebody else took the mantle. Not only that, but they were human beings. They had limited ability, limited time, limited attention. Jesus isn't like that. Nothing interrupts his authority. Nothing interrupts his attention. He has all the time necessary. So that all of us, each of us, can go at any given time, at all the same time if we need to, and plead with him for help. And he has the capacity to minister to us, to hear us, to pay attention, to give us full attention, all that we need, and to respond. So it doesn't always play out the way we hope, or he doesn't always give us the answers that we come up with for him. But he's never in weakness. There's no scarcity in him. So the writer of the Hebrews writes to their friends, these people that they've poured their lives into, to say, Jesus is greater. Stay the course. Stay close to Jesus because he is all we need. And he's enough. In whatever crisis we face, at any time we might be challenged in honest reflection to go before God and say, why didn't you? Are you even listening? Do you even understand what I need? The writer of the Hebrews is helping us know that the answer to those questions is always yes. Jesus never fails. He's never interrupted. He's never weak. He's the perfect priest, fully aware, fully able to know us, know what we need, and respond. His sacrifice is enough for us. He can make us right with God as we trust in him. And he does it. It's not just like, oh, I hope it'll work for me. He does it. He's enough. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews wanted these readers in the first century to know. 
And as God has embedded this letter into his word, the Bible, it's also God's heartfelt word to us that we would be encouraged and strengthened as we face crisis and trial. To know that Jesus is our perfect priest and he's on his kingly throne and he's always at work and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and you are able to hear each of our prayers. You know the situations that each one of us is in. You know the things that weigh us down. The crises that we're caring about right now are carrying with us. The burdens that we have. And we turn to you and we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We thank you, Father God, for sending Jesus as one of us to experience life with us, for us. We thank you, Jesus, for letting go of the glory of heaven in order to experience problems and temptations like we do, for laying down your life to be our perfect sacrifice. Father God, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would help these words from, from your word, this truth, anchor us. Pray that you would work it into the depths of our hearts and our minds, that we would know it, believe it, believe you, and follow where you lead. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in the crises of our lives and the crises of the world. You would use every moment to draw us close to you and affirm for us your love for us, who you are, and what you've called us to. Do your work in us and set us free to love you, to know you, that we would be your people and you would be our God. In Jesus' name, amen.